I want to read this to us this morning just to prepare us to celebrate and to give praise to God for his unbelievable love for us. In Psalm 117, the psalmist writes and says, Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Listen, if we're going to have any reason to praise God this morning, it's going to be because of his steadfast love towards us. That love that doesn't stop, it doesn't cease, it doesn't turn away simply because we are broken and failed people. But God's love is steadfast. It is constant. It is poured out over us. And God says, if you ever want to question if I love you or not, he says, look at the cross. In Romans 5 Verse 8, we're told that God demonstrated his love, showed his love, made manifest, visible his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever question whether God loves you or not, God himself says, look at the cross. And the reason we have to celebrate this morning is because Jesus came to this earth He he stooped, he lowered himself and came to this earth in the form of a human being and he lived among us. And then he walked up and he put himself on the cross and he became sin for us to demonstrate the absolute steadfast love of God. I don't know about you, but we cannot proclaim our love and devotion for God apart from the cross of Jesus. So as we sing this morning, let's remember that God's love for us was so steadfast, so significant, and it's for all the nations that the Son of God, Jesus himself, would die to purchase us back. So as we sing this morning, let's give God all the glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that as we sing about your cross, we would give you praise for the fact that you died for us. You bled and you died for us as sinners. That your love was steadfast towards us in the fact that you rescued us by giving yourself up for someone such as me. Oh God, as I consider my sin, I am in awe of the fact that you would die for me. And yet, Lord Jesus, you did. And may you receive praise this morning. Help us as Christians to sing at the top of our lungs that our purchase is found in the cross of Jesus. So let us give you glory and honor forever. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Eddie. I'm going to ask if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. I hope you do. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, as we celebrate Palm Sunday... In preparation for Easter, and we're going to study this text that I'm sure many of you have heard before, have read before, studied before, but hopefully we can learn something and get a clearer picture of who God is and what he's done for us this morning. Mark chapter 11, I want to share with you this morning about the king and his kingdom from Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read this to us this morning. From the English Standard Version. And what I hope to point us to is the authority of Christ and what it says about who he is. Mark chapter 11, 
starting in verse 1. If you are physically able, I would ask that you stand with me this morning in honor for God's word, and then I'll let you be seated for just a few moments. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that no matter what our hearts are this morning, you would help us to see your beauty today. And Lord, I pray for those who are sorrowful this morning, that you might bring joy. For those who are helpless, I pray that you'll see that there is great help in you. God, for those who struggle to find hope, I pray that you will show them there is hope in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning to give you the glory that you deserve. God, we are truly thankful that we are not the only church in this community that preaches the gospel. I'm thankful, Lord, that there are many churches here in our community that share the word of God with boldness, unashamed. And so, God, I pray that you'll guard us from making our number one priority and concern the kingdom of Fairhaven. Lord, help us to see that it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with your kingdom. And so, God, help us to be truly submitted to who you are and to your authority. Oh, Lord, I pray you'll show us today that Jesus was not walking around as a hapless victim, but Jesus was the sovereign king of the universe who was willingly putting himself up on the cross. God, help us to see today that he is the one who saw all events before one even transpired. And Lord, help our devotion to be for you. And so, God, as I preach today, I pray that you will help me to preach not in my own power, which is nothing, but, God, in the power of your Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you might use me and my words to point people to Jesus this morning. And I pray, God, that people who are in this room who do not know you, who are trusting in their own efforts, in their own goodness to be saved, God, I pray you will show them this morning crystal clear that they can never earn your salvation, but God, you have freely given it through your Son. May we rest in the arms of our Savior today. And we ask it all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. Just so you know, just to give you a heads up, I know I've only been at this church since August, and so uh, you haven't had the chance to hear me preach many times on special occasions. I stink at doing special occasion sermons. I'm terrible at them. So just to prepare you ahead of time for Mother's Day, Mother's Day is not going to be about mothers, because I'm going to preach on sin, right? And Father's Day isn't going to be about dads. It's going to be about sin and the fact that we need rescue from our sin. And so just to prepare you ahead of time, I'm terrible at special occasions. 
I'm going to preach on the fact that we are dirty, filthy sinners, that apart from Christ we have no life and no hope of anything, and yet Jesus came and died for us that we might be redeemed. So if you're ready for that message, here we go. Mark chapter 11, we're wrapping up the earthly ministry of Jesus. In fact, everything that Jesus has been doing has been pointing to this week. Because Mark chapter 11 starts the Passion Week and his depiction of what Jesus did in Jerusalem during that time. And so what we have here is a focus on Christ and what he is doing and specifically the culmination of all that he's been doing. And the main focus I want to share with you this morning is that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised. If there's any question in the minds of the people of whether or not Jesus is the king, he is the promised one, they should be swept aside the minute we see what he's been doing, and especially during this Passion Week. He is the Messiah who was promised. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all authority, and we must and should submit to him. But because of our fallen condition, because we're sinners, we can be guilty of celebrating Jesus only for what we can get out of him. We're guilty of celebrating Jesus only insofar as he will help us get that job we want. Or he'll take away the disease we have. Or he'll put money in our bank accounts. We are guilty of using Christ to get what we want. Or we are guilty of flat-out denial of him. Rejection of who he is and what he taught. And I need you to understand that as, as Christians, we still struggle with these things. Christians can be just as guilty of using Jesus and trying to manipulate him to get what they want. I say that because I've done it. And what I need to see this morning, I hope what you need to see this morning more than anything, is that Jesus isn't beautiful because of what we can get out of him. Jesus is beautiful because of who he is. I want you to notice that what we see this morning is that Jesus is welcomed as a king into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem is found in all four gospel accounts, which tells us it's important. The earthly ministry of Jesus has been pointing to this week. This is the final chapter in the earthly ministry of Christ. And I want to show you a few things this morning. Number one, so I, if you're taking notes, and you should take notes, everyone in this room should come in here ready to take notes because you will not remember much of what I say this morning. And so you need to jot some notes down so that you can refer to them later, not because my words have great power, but because hopefully what I'm doing is teaching you the Bible. So I need you to take notes. If you do not have a notebook, we still have two more in the foyer. You can go get one right now. They're on the table. You can go get one. No one will look at you funny. No one will make fun of you. But there's two more if you want one. Here's what I want to show you first from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. And we see it in this, this, this depiction of getting the, the cult. I want you to notice what he says in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, right? So they're traveling to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way. They're approaching Jerusalem with his disciples. And they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage, 
in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. So they're traveling into Jerusalem. Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And then he says in verse 3, if anyone says to you, what are you do- why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus has authority. Notice what he tells them to do. He says, number one, go get the colt. As they're approaching Jerusalem, Jesus calls for two of his disciples to go into the village. And he tells them to go and find a colt that is tied up there. Jesus tells them where to find it, and he says, here's what you say if anyone asks you what you're doing. Well, I wonder why Jesus would tell them that. Is it because Jesus might have known that someone was going to ask, why are you taking this? So can I tell you, there are, there's at least one big thing that sticks out at me as we look at what he said so far. Jesus is orchestrating events. Okay. I used to love to do plays, right? This is a key. When I was in middle school, I loved the idea of doing plays, right? Playing parts, right? And and I just thought it was the coolest thing. I always wanted to audition for one of them, but I never did because I was too, you know, chicken, right? I had... I had a terrible acne, and I got a nose like this, and I got no hair that I can do anything with. So there's no chance of me getting anything glorious. You know what I'm talking about. But I always wanted to, always wanted to have something. I always wanted to play in the musical or in the play or do something like that. But one thing I love about it is that there's always someone who's in charge who tells people, go here, now it's your turn, now say that line, now go do this, camera, go there, right? Now we put the spotlight there. And someone orchestrates all the events. They are the director. And the, the play or the musical goes on, and they're the ones who provide all of the backdrop and background. They're the ones who are able to orchestrate all the events that are taking place. And Jesus here is acting like the director of the play, except these are people's lives and this is reality. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying to his disciples, now you go there, and when you go there, you're going to find this. And then you're going to bring that here. And then if someone asks you about this, you're going to say this. And Jesus is not some victim going, I wonder what's going to happen next. It's not as if Jesus doesn't know the end of the story or know what's going on. Jesus is orchestrating events. He's saying, now you go here. Now you say this. They're going to say this, and you say this back to them. And then you find that, and you bring it here. That's a, that ain't just a normal dude. Right, Because a normal dude who starts saying, go here and do this, he's usually just saying, this is what I think is going to happen. I'm guessing. Here's what's going to arrive. Jesus is saying, go here. Find the cult. It's going to be here. It's, here's what the cult looks like. Right? Here's, here's something that describes the cult. Here's what someone's going to ask you, and here's what you're going to say. So Jesus isn't somebody who's unaware of his circumstances. He is orchestrating every event, telling his disciples exactly what to do and where to go and how to do it. Jesus is showing his authority as he lays out the plan that's to be followed ahead of time. And Jesus even goes so far to say that the colt has never been ridden. That changes things because that doesn't just mean any donkey. Just go find any donkey you can find. No, he says there's a, there's a colt that has never been ridden on. Well, that narrows it down. And if Jesus doesn't know what's happening, he's really painted himself into a corner. But he says this, this cult has never been ridden on, which, by the way, according to the Old Testament in Numbers and Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel, 
Animals that had never been ridden or used for work were actually seen as suitable for sacred reasons, could be used for sacred purposes. So the fact this, this colt had never been ridden on means it is suitable for a specific sacred purpose. Now, the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all explain how the cult was found must mean that there is some significance to it. I just happen to believe that this is a demonstration of Jesus' authority and of his omniscience. Does anybody know what omniscience means? All-knowing. So Jesus is displaying not only does he have authority, but he knows everything. Well, regular dudes don't know everything. So Jesus must be different than you and I. You say, duh. But just so you know, in today's day and age, that's not a given. Some people view Jesus as just another guru, just another good teacher. No, he is omniscient. He is God in the flesh. Jesus deserves our worship, not just because of what he does, but ultimately because he is God. And he displays it in his authority and in his all-knowing. So Jesus has authority. We see it, number one, in the cult. We see it, number two, in how the disciples respond. He says, if anyone says to you in verse three, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. We'll send it back here immediately. Verse four, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. Wait a second. We skipped the part where Mark tells us that they ask questions. We skip the part where the disciples go, oh, wait a second, what? We see the authority of Jesus in the way that the disciples respond to him. Nobody in this room would have had a question about this plan. Y'all would have been cool with it, huh? Go find a cult. They ask you what's going on. Tell them this. Bring it back. Okay. I'll be the ungodly one. I would have had some questions because Jason doesn't like confrontation with strange people. And the minute I go take your donkey is the minute we might have a confrontation. And yet here, the disciples who are sent don't seem to question his authority. He says, go get it. They go. Okay. That must tell us about something about who Jesus is, that his disciples would go, got it. We'll go do it. And guess what? They find the cult exactly where Jesus said it would be. And they are questioned just like Jesus said as they untie it. It says in verse 5, some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the cult? Now, see, that's the question I don't want. Right? I'm just... Trying to get the colt. Going to head out of here. Maybe they won't come outside. Maybe they won't hear me. But they ask, why are you untying that? Verse 6, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. Okay, so we see the authority of Jesus, and he says, go do this, go find the colt, bring it back to me. You see the authority of Jesus in the fact that the disciples go, okay, and they go do it. And you see the authority of Jesus in the way the, own, the owners of the colt don't argue. Listen, if I showed up and just went into your garage and started taking your lawn equipment out, you'd probably want to know what I was doing 
And you probably wouldn't accept, I just need it for a second. I swear I'll bring it back. Now, you wouldn't trust me, and you know me. Imagine you didn't know me. So the owners, hey, why are you untying the colt? Um, Jesus said he needed it, and we'll bring it back when we're done. Oh, well, you should have said that. Sure, take it. What? I'm going to need a little bit more than that. Can you leave something with, got some collateral? But you notice that the owners say, okay. Well, apparently Jesus has authority that even the owners understand. Because they give the cult up. See, Mark's not just telling us about a good guy named Jesus who lived for a little bit and did some cool stuff. Mark is telling us in his gospel that this Jesus is God in the flesh walking around. Who commands and it's done. Who knows all things. Who is in authority, is the king. He's not being ambiguous about the fact that this Jesus is the Messiah. Not only does Jesus show he has authority, but the people respond. It says in verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now, just so you know, that's not a small, insignificant event. That's actually a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets who is quoted in Matthew and John, Here's from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That text in Zechariah 9 was talking about the Messiah, the king who was going to come. So when Jesus is loaded up on the donkey, there is no ambiguity. They're saying this is the Messiah. Remember, Zechariah told us he was coming just like this. Because just so you know, most kings don't get trotted in on the back of a colt. But here's Jesus, the king of the universe, sitting on a donkey. <laughs> Listen, Easter ain't about cute little eggs and chocolate bunnies. This is Mark in his gospel preparing us for the fact that this Jesus is the king of the universe and he has come to man. And that's not a small deal. And that can't be summed up in colored eggs. And the people respond to him. We're told that not only did they put cloaks on the back of the donkey... It says in verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. The people respond by putting cloaks on the ground, branches on the ground. 
And this was always done when talking about royalty. 2 Kings 9, it's done with Jehu when he's anointed king over Israel. It's representing their submission to Jesus as the new king, although I can't help but think about the fact that while they're celebrating him now and they're spreading their cloaks before him now, it's only a week away from the fact that Jesus is going to be left on the cross on his own. And everyone will have fled by that time. Because Jesus ain't so beautiful when he stops giving you what you want out of him. All of a sudden, people turn sour on him. All of a sudden, he doesn't look as glorious to them. When he's not coming to overthrow the government, all of a sudden, they don't love him so much anymore. But here, they're proclaiming, here is our king. He's finally shown up. And can I help you? They've been waiting thousands of years for the king to come. This isn't a small deal. They've waited thousands of years for the king who would come and set them free. And here he is right before them. And in a week's time, he'll be dead. And they put down these cloaks saying he's the king. They put down these leafy branches, which were told are palm branches by John. And those were symbols of victory. <laughs> symbols of victory. We're told the crowd was so extensive, those going before him and those following him. John tells us that there are those in the crowd who had been with him since he raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. And then there were those who had come from Jerusalem ahead because they heard he was on his way. And together they sing praises to Jesus. And the people respond by shouts of acclamation. Verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. The people shout Hosanna, which literally means save now. And it was used as a shout of praise. And the exclamation from the crowd actually comes from Psalm 118, which is a Hallel psalm. It's a psalm that would have been sung during the, the celebration of Passover and in the temple, and in the synagogue for their feasts. It was a, an expression of great joy. In Matthew's account, Jesus is called the son of David. In Luke's account, he's called the king. Here in Mark, they cry out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. The crowds acknowledge that Jesus is bringing in the promised kingdom of God, that he is the son that has been promised. But sometimes we can still miss the point of it all. John chapter 12, verse 16 tells us that even the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What did the people want? What did the people want from Jesus? They wanted victory. What they wanted from Jesus was they wanted to win. And unfortunately, in each of their heads, there was a different description of what winning meant. And for most of them in that crowd that day, their definition of victory was that Jesus would come, set up an earthly kingdom, he would overthrow the Roman government, and he would be the king of his people. That is the victory they so desired. The problem, 
Jesus' definition of victory was totally different. Jesus' definition of victory wasn't your financial security in this world. Jesus' definition of victory wasn't that all your life would line up and would perfectly go to your favor. Jesus' definition of victory in your life was not that you would get the best parking spot at Walmart. Jesus' definition of victory wasn't your best day now. Jesus' definition of victory was to set spiritual slaves to sin free. What the people that day probably didn't understand fully, in fact, we know the disciples didn't even fully understand it. What they did not get was that Jesus was bringing victory all right. But Jesus was bringing victory ultimately, not over some earthly power, but he was bringing victory over spiritual darkness. He was bringing victory over the evil one. And so as they sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. They're crying out for victory. They're expecting victory. And Jesus is bringing victory. But not according to their, their description and definition. And just so you know, Jesus brings victory over that which is really important. Jesus' victory is really significant. Because if Jesus only came to overthrow an earthly kingdom, then he's leaving us woefully short. Because our number one problem isn't a president or a king. Our number one problem is sin and brokenness and rebellion against God. That's our number one problem. That's what we need victory from. And thank God he doesn't show up to give us what we want. But he shows up to give us what we desperately need. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you're celebrating, hopefully, because God didn't just come to overthrow a government and to set up some earthly king for you. God sent his son to bring victory over sin and death. And you as a Christian are celebrating the fact that that is real. And you've been forgiven. And you've been set free. And I don't care what king I got to live under in this world. Nothing can take away the fact that I've been set free from sin forever. Sometimes we only want Jesus so far as he'll give us what we want. And the minute he stops, we can have nothing to do with him. But Jesus shows up at the appointed time by God. And he dies to bring us victory over sin, which was our greatest need. And so what we worship Jesus for is not just because he gave us a house and he gave us a job and he gave us money and he gave us family. Those are all great things. But we, we celebrate Jesus not just for those things. We celebrate Jesus because he's the giver of all of those things. We celebrate family, and we celebrate jobs, and we celebrate the resources and the blessings God has given us because we have him. And as a result, all of these things flow. Every spiritual blessing is ours because of what Christ has done. So what I want to give you for Easter and for Palm Sunday is something greater than just your temporary satisfaction in this world.
but the good news that while you were dead in your sin and lifeless and no hope of being rescued, Jesus came, he died, and he rose again so that you and I might be forgiven of all our sin. And not just the sin we commit, but every sin we've ever thought about committing. That's how total this thing is. And as the crowds are celebrating, Hosanna, Hosanna. There is victory coming, but not the way they anticipated. And what we have the blessing of today is that we live on this side of Jesus, right? We're able to look back and see all that he's done. And I'm telling you, what your family needs is not candy eggs or peeps, because those are disgusting. They're horrible. They're terrible. They don't need cute little baskets with fake green grass in them. They don't need eggs hidden in the yard. And they don't need pictures of bunnies splattered all over the place. Listen, if you do that, that's great. Uh, we do some of the same things, but that's not what we need. What we need is to come face to face with the Son of God, stepped out of heaven, walked among his creation, lived in perfect submission to the will of the Father, died on the cross, died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, buried, locked away, shut away, gone, king is gone, shut away and dead. And he rose again to show that the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus and accepted it, and to show that victory had been given over sin, death, and Satan. And I'm telling you what, there ain't no bunnies that can bring joy like that. There is no candy you can give me that can satisfy the eternal longing of my soul. Only Christ can. So as you do these things, listen, have bunnies. It's okay. I love bunnies. Have bunnies and, and have candy and, and hide them if you want. But as you're doing that, don't forget the reason you're celebrating, hopefully, is because God rescued you from death and sin and brought you new life. I hope that's what it is. Now, here's what the Bible tells us. God is perfect. He's holy. He's awesome. He's righteous. He's good. He's just. He's compassionate and merciful. He's a just judge. We're told that he is perfect. He is everything we are not. Human beings, the Bible tells us we rebel against God. We try to be God ourselves. He is the rightful king. We are Kings ourselves, we try to set ourselves up to rule our own lives. And what the Bible tells us is that Christ took our sin upon himself, that while we rebelled against him, he would die for us. And what the Bible calls us to do is calls us to repent and trust and believe that Jesus is the only Savior. And so this morning, what I want to point you to is that there is one rightful king, and Jesus shows his authority in how he deals with his disciples here. 
He is the king, and we rebel against his authority and rule. And Jesus came and died that we might be forgiven and brought back to him. And if we repent, if we turn away from sin and trust in Christ and in his death and resurrection, we can be brought back into the presence of God. We can be brought back into fellowship of God. We can be brought back into the presence of God that we can live under the loving rule of our king. And so this morning, if you're here and you're trusting in your own ability, you're trusting in your own efforts, can I help you? There is only one rightful king. He's the one who created everything, including you, and he deserves your worship. And so if you're trusting in yourself, I'm urging you, on behalf of Christ, I'm urging you to turn away from trying to be your own God and trust in the king of kings, the true king. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to realize that we're celebrating the fact that we have been purchased from death to life. And that's not a small deal. That is everything to us. There is no greater gift God could give than the rescue of our souls. And so over the course of this season, let us give him the praise he deserves. Give him the glory he deserves. Because he alone was the one who was able to be the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. What I want for you as Christians more than anything in the world is you will worship Christ. Because he is so immensely sweet to you. He's far greater treasure than anything else this world could offer. So maybe this morning you need to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to repent and trust in him. After the service, I'm here for you. I'm happy to talk to you about what the Bible says about how you can have a relationship with Christ. I urge you to find me. Say, Jason, I want to know more about what it means to be a Christian. I'll be happy to sit down and talk to you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a Christian, but maybe you haven't been following after him the way that the Bible calls us to. Maybe, maybe not even in baptism. Maybe you need to be baptized as a Christian. Maybe you haven't followed him in that first step of obedience. I'm happy to talk to you after the service and, and share with you what that means and what that looks like. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been bouncing from church to church. You don't have a church family that you call your own. You've been mixing and mingling with different types of families, but you've never, ever committed yourself to be a part of a, of a faith family, maybe you need to join this church. Maybe you need to say, we're not going to be spiritual orphans anymore. We're going to join a family. I'd be happy to stick around after church and talk to you about what that means, how you can join the church, what that, what that entails. I'm just encouraging us that as we respond in this moment, let's just pray to God that he would help us to either repent and trust in him for the first time or to worship him for all he is right now. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that your word will take root in the hearts of your people. And God, I pray that no matter what we need to do, whether it's trusting you for the first time or just remember, God, once again, that you are the sovereign king of the universe, God, I pray what you'll help us do in this moment is trust in you and give you worship, God. So I pray you'll help us do that. Lord, for the people sitting in these seats, if they are relying on their own efforts and work in order to save themselves, God, I pray you will show them they cannot be their own kings. But God, you don't call them to be their own kings. You call them to submit to your kingship. And so I pray most of all, God, they will see that Jesus is the rightful king and he deserves their worship. God, may they trust in him. May they turn away from their sin, turn away from their trying to be king on their own. And God, may they trust in you. And Lord, help us as Christians to be joyous for the fact, God, that you have rescued us. You didn't give us what we wanted. You gave us what we needed, which was rescue from sin. 
And God, help us as Christians to live for you and devotion for you. God, we fail you so often, and yet we are so grateful for your forgiveness. So help us, God, to repent once again and to trust. God, to turn to you and to give you the worship you deserve. God, I pray that in this response time, what you will find in these seats are people who are giving you all the glory. God, may you do it for your own name's sake. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.